getting made a spirals, wee man. Hello and welcome to episode 7 of People of Glasgow. I'm your host and jabroni, Raymond Williams, and in this episode I talk to Trevor Slaughter. Trevor is a member of Glasgow Skeptics, a PhD student, and it's one of those American things that you get nowadays. Links for this episode are available at peopleofglasgow.co.uk forward slash 7. That's the number 7, not the word. Thanks to the Metropolitan Bar for hosting this episode. Now, because we recorded in a pub, there's some background music. I also had to re-record my questions, which makes me sound weird and disjointed. But at least it allowed me to make my questions more concise instead of going, uh, how is uh, science made? To suggest a guest or comment on this episode, you can contact us through the site, or email us poglasgow at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter at peopleglasgow. That's People Glasgow without the of. And now on to the episode. Cheery bye. You're a member of Glasgow Skeptics. Can you explain who they are and what they do? Well, the, the spiel that we actually open every event with is that Glasgow Skeptics is a grassroots, non-commercial organization committed to science and understanding, critical thinking, and freedom of expression. And, you know, that's, that's our, you know, catchphrases. But what that means practically is we put on events to promote basically those ideals. So almost every Monday of uh, the year, we'll have speakers come in and talk about a range of topics from an evidence-based critical perspective and then have uh, discussions about it. Um, but we also do occasional uh, extra things on the side, uh, like putting up stalls with just like little interesting experiments or, or, or pamphlets, just to sort of um, encur- encourage those sorts of things, those, those three uh, slogans that I've said before. What do you see as the advantages of critical or sceptical thinking in everyday life? Oh, well, I mean, I mean, that's such a broad question because I think, I think most people will intuitively agree that critical thinking is helpful in your everyday life because, I mean, we, we're human, we're all very, very fallible, and so it's very easy for, for us to make mistakes, uh, to get deceived by things. And so we all strive in some way to overcome those failings of our perceptions or of our processing, of our thinking, and try and get closer to a better understanding of what the world really is like so we can live a better life. Um, Of course, there are disagreements about what the best process to actually get there is. Uh, That's where we come in. but yeah, I mean, every, every, what it, I mean, critical thinking in your everyday life, that comes down to everything from not being deceived by lying ad campaigns uh, to not being deceived by lying politicians. <laughs> What's your thoughts on the Cambridge Analytica scandal? They were targeted ads, but still ads. About fake content. Well, it's, it's one of those... It's one of those extra sinister things because, you know, I talked about we're all fallible. We all think that we can see something and say, oh, that's clearly got an agenda. But we forget how often things we glance over and then forget that we read them, but they're still in our minds. And then they pop back up again later. And we all do this, every single one of us. So, like, that sort of extra awareness that you are also capable of doing that helps you understand why Cambridge Analytica thought they could get away with it, and, you know, maybe they did, scarily enough. 
Am I right that most of the Glasgow Skeptics events are in the Admiral Bar or in Watsons? Uh, I guess it's fair to say that the majority of our uh, events, which are these you know, public talks that I mentioned, are in the Admiral Bar, uh, which is not too far from Central Station. Uh, once a month we go to Waterstones on Sucky Hall Street, uh, but also once a month we visit our friends at Cafe Scientifique, who are also at Waterstones on Sucky Hall Street. So you can think of it as like twice a month we're at Waterstones on Sucky Hall Street, and then the remaining weeks we're at um, what our leader calls our spiritual home, the Admiral Bar, which uh, both venues are great, treat us wonderfully. Um, but yeah, those are the main, main two that we offer them. How did you end up joining the group? Oh, um, well, you know, I actually kind of got into it on purpose. Like, there, we have a number of volunteers who got sort of swept up. They, they went to a couple of, uh, of our talks and said, oh, this is fun. I want to help organize that. I actually very distinctly became involved in the skeptics movement as a conscious decision um, when I became an atheist, actually. It became a conscious decision to get involved in the skeptics movement. Uh, and I moved to Glasgow at the end of 2015, and then partway through 2016, I went to the Science Festival, uh, saw there was a stall by Glasgow Skeptics, went up to them and said, hey, I've always wanted to help out with an organization like this, never have, could I? And they said, yes. <laughs> well, they thought about it for a while. They looked me over and were like, hmm, I don't know, American. <laughs> Currently studying for a PhD, what's the subject? Oh, that's a, that's a glorious question that I always uh, ask myself, more or less, every morning. And, uh, and then again when I get home at night. Um, no, so I'm working on uh, what's called ecological modeling. So it's constructing mathematical uh, ways of modeling ecosystems. Uh, and specifically, I'm working on uh, the Arctic Ocean um, and sort of the lowest... Uh, what we call trophic levels, which is sort of the bottom of the food web, is what I'm working on, these, these plant-like organisms in the ocean. Uh, yeah, and uh, that, yeah, that's what I do. So is that an alignment of your interests? An interest in maths linked to an interest in environment? Uh, no, that's a good way of putting it. Um, I, you know, long sort of, so I was raised by a mathematician and uh, my sister became a mathematician and her husband's a mathematician and my brother's a computer scientist. It almost seemed inevitable that I would be doing something mathematical, but I was actually really, really bad at it. Uh, but I was really interested in it, so it, yeah, it's a good way of putting it, because I, I I've been relatively environmentally conscious for a long time, um, you know, and I have this sort of inbuilt interest in, in math and stats, kind of mixed together. And, uh, where does your environmental interest come from? Is that because you grew up in a coastal city? Well, no. Uh, I'm from a coastal state in the U.S., but actually I was about as far from the coast as you could get in that state. Um, nevertheless, being from that state, you know, you hear whenever a hurricane hits because most of the population's on the coast. So they, <laughs> you know, the local news would cover that extensively. Um, no, I don't really know. I, I, I would probably say it was a combination of how I was raised my parents were always uh, fairly environmentally conscious um, with, you know, the professors and faculty that I met in my undergrad. How long have you been studying for your PhD for? When do you expect to finish? Well, 
What a wonderful question. So the money runs out at the end of November. <laughs> so theoretically, that should be the end. Um, I believe it's pretty common in the UK to um, submit your thesis and then have a few months extra to write up any more articles to publish afterwards. Um, but yeah, so my, my deadline to submit my thesis is somewhere in November. What's an average day like as a PhD student? Yeah, it's... it's I mean, it, it varies quite a lot depending on your field. Um, I do think that a lot of people don't seem to realize just how similar it is to a regular job. Uh, for... I would expect most fields of study, you go into your office in the morning, you have a set of tasks that you want to work on, you work on them, you'll have meetings with your supervisors, like a manager, with your department, like your colleagues and whatnot. Um, yeah, it, it is very similar to a day job uh, in many other fields, unless of course you choose something like uh, biochemistry, in which case you'll probably have to, you know, do a lot of 24-hour-long experiments and be in the lab for several days straight and then go home for three weeks. But, yeah, those, in general, you, you know, it's like an office job. What's the end goal for your PhD? Well, there's the ideal situation, there's the ideal reality, and then there's actual reality. <laughs> like... The dream, I guess I should say, the dream is that your PhD gets uh, noticed by other people and the things that you publish out of your PhD um, get picked up by other scientists who say, that's really interesting and we are going to consider that what you've contributed to science moving forward. Um, you know, you can't really expect that that always happens. So what I would say is more like a slightly realistic ideal is to at least feel like you yourself have figured out how science is done. And, and it's a record of your own progress from kind of amateur to professional scientist in a sense. Um, so the most important thing is like, even if your PhD doesn't make any other scientists go, oh man, that's essential work. You at least have that for yourself, that you now have walked the walk in addition to talking the talk. Um, probably the actual reality, though, is that quite a lot of PhD students, they publish it, and that's kind of gone forever. And, um, this, which is, again, not disparaging it, because if you look at it in that idealistic sense, you've still learned a lot yourself. But, uh, yeah, there's a, quite a lot of PhD theses out there that no one's ever going to look at again, even if they're super good, even if they're super important. That was bleak. Uh, sorry about that. <laughs> if you get your ideal outcome, where do you see yourself in five years? Um, well, I mean, one of my biggest, one of my biggest research interests is, I guess you could say epistemology. The whole field of, of modeling is one that really forces you to ask a lot more questions about what really are we studying and why are we studying it and break things down to a lot of pieces. So I would very much like to stay in that sort of modeling research, um, but I'm also very much personally interested in science communication and outreach, which ties back into why I'm with Vasco Skeptics in the first place. How did you end up at Strathclyde Juni? Oh, well, uh, I mean, the short answer is 
uh, my supervisor put out an advertisement for a PhD position. I applied for it, and he hired me. The long answer is uh, that you know, after my master's, I wanted to do uh, an environmental modeling PhD project at a different university, um, and there was a lot of interest from the faculty to help me out with that, but there wasn't the money, and we put some time and effort trying to put together some grant proposals, and they didn't work out. And I put a lot of effort and a lot of time into doing that, and then finally said, I need to find somewhere else, and applied and applied and applied and applied and applied and got rejected, 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 almost always because of lack of money. Until finally Stratified said, we already have the money. And that was, that was how that worked out. And whereabouts in South Carolina are you from? So it's in the upstate. It's near the uh, Appalachian Mountains. Uh, South Carolina is kind of triangular shaped with one side of the triangle on the coast. And I'm up in a little corner uh, far away from the coast. How does South Carolina compare to Glasgow in terms of the place and the people? Well, I mean, the city I'm actually from is a weird one in that... Well, I, a lot of American cities are weird like this because they're very spread out. Uh, so, technically, my hometown has a bigger population than Glasgow. Its downtown area is tiny. Like, there's, there's very little actually there. I mean, since I've been gone, actually, there's been a massive amount of development, but it's still relatively small looking compared to Glasgow. If you came to Glasgow, you'd be like, wow, I'm in a real city. You go back to my own town, it's like, oh, it's a town. It, it's a weird thing uh, in America, the way they're like that. But that's the biggest difference, I would argue. Um, I mean, obviously, there's any number of cultural differences uh, between America and Britain. So you've been in Glasgow since 2015. Have you been home since Trump again? I have, actually, a couple of times. Um, yeah, it's um, it's been it's been interesting. So South Carolina voted Trump pretty significantly, not as significantly as he should have won, being the Republican candidate, though. I, People don't really acknowledge enough how much lack of voter turnout helped Trump because even Republicans weren't super enthusiastic for him. Um, overall, overall. Because obviously his core is crazy, but... Um, so like South Carolina should have been like massively overwhelming pro-Trump. And it was overwhelming pro-Trump, but not quite as massively as... Anyways, but the point is, <laughs> the reason I'm rambling about that is that my parents were never Republicans. And living in South Carolina has always been kind of a, well, almost everyone around us very right-wing, unlike us. And then Trump kind of is an extra strain on everything. Because it's, you know, at least Republicans before pretended something. <laughs> what I thought I'd do here is bring up some American stereotypes and see how they hold up. Kind of word association. First up, guns. Again, it's one of those things where you have to point out that the gun lobby is really detached from gun owners. Um, the vast majority of gun owners hate the NRA, um, but the NRA is just so rich and powerful that it gets what it wants. Nevertheless, 
there's it's very true that there is a gun loving culture um, and even those gun owners that hate the NRA have you know an attachment to guns that it's foreign to me and I've noticed it's very foreign to uh, people here in Britain um, here as well and all I can say is it, it, it just is foreign to me so man I don't know where it comes from but it is there Stereotype number two, religion. Right, so South Carolina is in the middle of the Bible Belt. Um, there's basically, you drive down any road in South Carolina and you'll see church, church, law firm, church, 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 law firm, church, church, law firm. Um, usually all different denominations do. They they split a lot. You know, there's, there's the... Uh, all kinds of different variations of Southern Baptist, but there's also the Methodists and the Presbyterians, and then there's also breakaway sects. I grew up down the road from uh, a little thing called Bob Jones University. Bob Jones was a, a particular strand of, of uh, religious zealot, evangelical, who, who broke away and formed his own thing, and now it's named after him, and Bob Jones III is overseeing it now. And Oh yeah. Big deal in South Carolina. Big deal. Were you religious growing up? I was, in sort of a different way. Um, so my parents don't come from South Carolina. And they were both Catholic. Um, and Catholicism... The, the prejudices in the, South, in the southern United States are, are very weird. It, um, well, actually, you know what? It, it's not that weird, because I think Glasgow can uh, understand this rather well that uh, <laughs> just because you're Christian doesn't mean you get along. <laughs> um, so South Carolinian Protestants would certainly accept a Catholic more readily than an atheist. Um, but they were still kind of like, hmm, Catholics. Nevertheless, there, there was a large Catholic population in my hometown. But yeah, so I was raised Catholic. I was raised a very liberal Catholic in contrast to a lot of uh, much more conservative Catholics and Protestants in the state. So, you know, again, it's one of those things where my parentage, even though they were religious, clashed a little bit with the surrounding culture. Stereotype three, racism. That's a big one. Well, South Carolina is the state that started the Civil War. They were the, um, they basically, they, they led everything, uh, they led the charge towards the eventual secession. They were the first to secede. They were the first to fire a shot on the Union Army. They Very quickly, the capital was moved to Virginia for political reasons, but South Carolina really did instigate that, and it's never, never really even acknowledged it. Um, so, yeah. It, yeah, so, and of course, the whole, the whole of the United States has the same problem. Um, it's very noticeable if you actually go there. I think anybody could actually see that for themselves. Um, I mean, short answer, yeah, it's a huge problem anywhere you go. I'm ragging a bit on South Carolina, but even up in the north in Boston, you're seeing a lot of the same things, a lot of the same tactics. Yeah, pretty bad. Um, again, I have to say, I'm very lucky I had the parents I did to steer me away from the worst aspects of the culture that the, the prevailing culture that America has. Yeah. Did Carolina split into North and South because of the Civil War? 
Oh no, that's that's long before that. North, North, and South Carolina were both proud Confederate uh, states. Um, yeah, no, they, they they split apart in the early days of the of the colonies. They 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 were separated before America became America. I, I don't even remember why. Uh, I'm sure I got taught that seven thousand times in school. <laughs> I've long since forgotten why. So much for rivalry between North and South Carolina. That's a great question. I don't really know. Um, a lot of the rivalry I'm aware of is internal to South Carolina. But now that you mention it, it's like, hey, why aren't we, why aren't we sticking it to the men up in North Carolina? I don't know. Yeah, good question. Stereotype three: an obsession with sports. Oh yeah. So again, when I brought up that some rivalries do exist within South Carolina, I was thinking of uh, some college sports. Huge deal. Uh, yeah, uh, pro sports is a very um, odd thing. Um, it, it it's very it's it, it's a very convoluted mess why certain cities get to have pro sports teams and others don't. The simplest possible explanation for why South Carolina doesn't is probably to do with population. There's just not that many. North Carolina, they're all based in Charlotte because that's really the one pretty big city between the two Carolinas, comparable to some other states. So South Carolinians, if they're looking for a pro sports team to root for, they, they tend to go towards the ones that are in North Carolina, like the Carolina Panthers uh, in, in uh, American football. is a strange beast of its own. Well, I googled you and found your TEDx talk in the stand-up at the Bright Club. You seem like a confident public speaker. Is that something you've got done? I'm... I'm awful. Like, when I'm backstage at a Bright Club event, just talk to the people who are backstage with me. I'm horrible because everybody else is like, well, you know, let's calm down, get ready to go on. And I'm freaking out, bringing the whole room down, just having a little anxiety attack, rambling to myself in a corner. Um, yeah, no. I, I, I don't know how I put on a persona of confidence when I go on stage because it's from 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 the moment I I get backstage and I'm like, oh, this is real now, isn't it? I'm not a mess. What is that? Is Bright Club? It's a science-based comedy. It is, yeah. Bright Club's great. They get actual uh, research scientists, usually PhD students, but it is open to people who are above and below. That, that era of their academic career. Um, and yeah, it forces them to go out and turn what they're doing into comedy, which is cathartic in many ways, and it is still ongoing. The next show is in June, actually. It's time for the section called Jargon Watch. What is a term used in South Carolina that the listeners can learn? I mean, the, the, the cliche, obvious go-to one is y'all. You know, every time I hear somebody say, oh, if only there was a way to distinguish singular you from plural you, that the southern United States goes, well, actually, we got y'all. But I think something Scots might appreciate is maybe being aware of some of uh, some of South Carolina's uh, food. We, we, we also savor chopping up the interiors of mammals and then boiling them. <laughs> We have, a, we have a product called Kitlins. So if you mix the chopped up intestines and fat of a pig and boil it, 
try it. We got chitlins. I think Scots might, well, maybe Glaswegians more than others would appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, the people that disgusted by it would really enjoy it. Explain the contents. Oh, I was always disgusted by it, but it's popular. <laughs> I guess kind of some ways the reverse of that. What's your favourite Glaswegian film? Ah, man. That's a fine question as well. I guess I'm perpetually amused by the way you refer to fizzy drinks as juice. That speaks volumes, I think. And I wish that would kept on. It was a mathematical scientific term that's frequently misused. Okay, too many are coming to mind. I'm gonna pick the cliche one and say theory, but not in the way you're thinking. Um, a lot of people um, misuse theory to mean completely untested. And a lot of well-meaning people will try to correct them, but still misuse the word theory by saying that theory is something really well-validated. Theory in, in scientific parlance can mean that. It's more accurate to say a theory refers to um, a whole web web structure of uh, hypotheses and data and evidence, and it doesn't necessarily mean that this is very well tested as a whole, but it, it's a theory is a way of connecting evidence and hypotheses, multiple hypotheses at that. So a good example is string theory, something where we need a lot more evidence before we can say that string theory is even remotely close to valid, which is not to despair between string theory at all but it's got a long way to go. It's still a theory though, because it is something that is connecting various hypotheses to various lines of, of inquiry and evidence. Um, so yes, yes, theories can be, you know, uh, also spurious. Questions jump about a little bit here. Is that a professional role model? I, you know, I, I do have a few, so if, if, if I can just drop a few names, I guess. Um, I'm continually, impressed by um, well okay yeah I'll just drop a few names uh, there's an astrophysicist named Katie Mack she's does good research and does really good communication science communication for the public and so that's something that makes you go oh wow you know that's that's something I, that's a skill I really wish I had because being able to do both is really impressive for anyone listening who's interested in getting into maths and science what advice would you give them? For the vast majority of uh, my childhood up through high school, uh, it was generally assumed by all of my teachers that I would never be able to do any amount of math because I was so bad at it. I was getting awful grades trying to do basic arithmetic. And, you know, they would call on my parents and be like, yeah, um, it's not the worst, but we really don't think this kid could... kid needs work. <laughs> okay, obviously a lot nicer than that, but yeah. Um, and yet, the fact that I'm here isn't so much a testament to, you know, determination to prove everyone one wrong, so much as a testament to what can happen with the right environment and with the right people approaching it. And that math 
is a way broader category than just arithmetic, which I still can't do to save my life. But, you know, there's certain other higher level concepts that I actually can handle that I know a lot of people who are great at arithmetic can't. Um, and so, if you're really interested in math and stats, and you're having any amount of trouble with it, just remember, it's all part of a, of a big web, and, you know, even if people are disparaging you, if you stick to it and keep trying to find your own way of looking at things, uh, I genuinely believe that even if you need extra time, even if it takes you longer than other people, or if it's harder for you, anybody can do all the same things in math and statistics and science generally. And you definitely shouldn't be disparaged if you're having trouble with it, because you're definitely capable of it, and that's really all that matters. Math seems to be a subject that people assume they just can't do. You see, I'm not math-minded, and they quit. Yeah. And, like, again, I get that some people will have a harder time at it, but it's definitely possible for everyone. And the same goes for art. You know, people tend to disparage, like, oh, you know, I can't paint. It's like, well, how, how, how much time have you actually spent trying to learn to draw? Because you can learn to draw. I don't, I don't, I can't draw to save my life, but I do see how, you know, I could improve. <laughs> I think especially having sort of the childhood I did where teachers were like, wow, you're really bad at this. Again, they said it nicely. They were good teachers. Um, but especially having that, I'm, I'm a lot more keenly aware when I read a paper and I'm like, I, I very frequently find myself going, wow, I can actually read that. Because I, maybe it helps that my father was a mathematician, because I remember seeing so many of these symbols as a child and going, yeah, well, according to what my teachers say, I'm never going to get that. And then looking back now, I'm being like, oh, yeah, okay, cool. Uh, like, yeah, I think about that a lot, and I, that might be why I have this optimistic attitude. <laughs> Have any favourite science-related films, books, documentaries? Man, you're always bu you're busting out the hard questions. Um, I mean, there's. I really, really love the movie Arrival. Its approach to a lot of very different concepts in math and and science in general is really, really good. Uh, it approaches both linguistics, but also um, biology in a very interesting way, because uh, you don't get this bland old aliens that kind of look humanoid shaped. No, they're, they're very weird and unique in their own way. And it, so I, I really like Arrival. It's graspable physics, it's problematic, but it's biology and it's ling uh, linguistics is definitely worth checking out for nerds, yeah. And then it aren't science related? Well, I mean, it depends on how you define completely unrelated, doesn't it? <laughs> uh, I mean, one of my favorite films of all time is, is, is Spotlight from a few years ago, which, you know, I know you said completely unrelated, but it does kind of tie into a lot of the things we've been talking about in terms of, you know, questioning authority and investigating things and whatever. But, um, and, yeah, and I'm also a huge fan of Doctor Who, which... You know, by and large, is it might be mean to say it's completely unrelated to science, but a lot of times it is. But it's still fun. Are we talking old Doctor Who? You? All? All of it. 
Um, you know, I keep saying I was so lucky to have the parents I did. I was definitely lucky because they raised me from childhood on Doctor Who, so that meant from the 80s onward, I was, you know, during that hiatus period, the only, there only was the classic Doctor Who, so I was raised on that, yeah. Final question, any websites, Twitter, anything you'd like the listeners to check out? Well, there's, I mean, of course there's the Glasgow Skeptic stuff. Uh, Glasgow Skeptics are on Twitter, at Glasgow Skeptics, they're on Facebook, Glasgow Skeptics. There's their website, glasgowskeptics.com, and there's an email list if you want to subscribe to that. It's only one email a week, so we're not going to harass you. Um, apart from that, there's, there's loads of scientists that are on Twitter just, you know, tweeting about what they do, explaining it, talking to people, it's really great. Um, Katie Mack is one of those, I mentioned her earlier. Uh, uh, Chanda Prescott-Weinstein is a physicist in the United States who tweets not just about science, but also academia and, you know, various problems that arise from, you know, the human side of academia. There's, there's you know, we're, we have lots of faults and we bring those in, in there as well. So, she's definitely worth following. Um, yeah, man, I, it, it's hard for me to, 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 to name one or two because there are there are really so many and the best thing is just jump out there. You'll find it. As soon as you start following one or two scientists on any social media platform, you're going to find others and you're going to think, oh, that's interesting, that's interesting, that's interesting. I gave you two names. You can start from there. <laughs> and that's the end. Thank you for listening, and please check out peopleofglasgow.co.uk. One, mathematics is the language of nature. Two, everything around us can be represented and understood through numbers. <laughs>